As we know by now, the Apostle Paul founded a church in the modern-day Greek city of Thessalonica. It's called Thessaloniki today. When he traveled there with his ministry companion, Silas. However, they were only able to meet with this newly formed church for three weeks at the most before being chased out of town by a group of Jews who made trouble everywhere they went because they believed that the apostles were teaching heresy. These Jews wanted to see them dead and Paul and Silas would have stayed with this new Thessalonian church, but the believers there loved them too much to let them do that and they said, you're better to us alive than you are dead so we gotta get you out of town before you get murdered. About five to six months later, Silas is finally able to return to Thessalonica along with Paul's young protege, Timothy, to see how the young church is doing. They brought back a report to Paul who then sat down and penned the letter of 1 Thessalonians. In the months following Paul writing that letter, Thessalonica became the first place in the Roman Empire where intense persecution against Christians began to take place. It was there that the first Gentile Christians were martyred. You'll recall that the group of Jews who hated Jesus tried to get the Romans to kill him by telling them that Jesus was anti-Rome, that he was claiming to be a king who was greater than Caesar and was stirring up anti-Roman sentiment among the masses. This was a charge that the Jews who were opposed to Jesus would continue to use to stir up trouble against men like Paul and Silas and the other apostles as they spread the gospel across the empire and the world in the early years of the church. And this is what had started happening in Thessalonica. In response to these rumors they had started about the Christians being anti-Rome, the Roman governor in the region issued a decree that every Christian would have to bow down before a statue of Augustus Caesar. At that time, the Caesar had been deified. He had been officially declared a god, and there were statues of him everywhere. And so the Roman governor said, well, let's figure this out. Let's get to the bottom of this. Let's just have them bow down to the statue. But obviously, the Christians couldn't do that in good conscience. And so they were persecuted. Believers were losing their jobs. They were losing their homes and all of their possessions. They were being beaten up, dragged off, thrown in prison, and even murdered, martyred for serving Jesus. And while they were standing strong in their commitment to Jesus, their faith was being challenged by some false prophets and false teachers that Satan had sent to cause them trouble. And in fact, there was even a a forged letter being passed around under the guise of being from Paul. And the message from these false teachers and false prophets and even the forged letter was the same. This is what the message was. Guys, you are in the day of the Lord. All these troubles that you are experiencing are because you are now in the time period when God's judgment and wrath is being poured out on the earth and so things are just gonna get worse. There is no rapture, and if there is, you've missed it. And as you can imagine, this deeply troubled the believers in Thessalonica and left them confused because Paul had told them that the rapture would take place before the day of the Lord, before the great tribulation. When news of this reached Paul, he sat down and wrote to them again, somewhere between a few months to a year after he penned his first letter. And Paul's desire was to clear up the confusion and discouragement that was now sweeping through the church. And that letter is the letter of 2 Thessalonians, which we're going to begin today. So it begins in verse 1, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Silvanus is just the man we know as Silas. To the church of the Thessalonians in, would you underline in, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We talked about this phrase back in 1 Thessalonians, the idea of being in God and in Christ. It's a positional statement, and these Thessalonian believers, they needed to know that their position in God was secure. They needed to know that they were in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Why did they need to be reminded of this? Well, just think of how we tend to be when trials hit our lives especially when we're young in the faith. And when I say young, I don't just necessarily mean you've been a believer for a few years, I mean immature. If we're young in the faith in terms of length of time or if we're immature in the faith, we tend to think things like, well, maybe I've done something wrong and, and this is God punishing me when trials hit our life. Or, or we think, 
maybe God has abandoned me. Maybe he's just left me. And they weren't any different. Paul wanted them to know that neither of those things were true. They were still in God. The world may have been falling down all around them, but their position in God was secure. Here's why. We've talked about this before. Write this down. The believer's position in Jesus is secure because it was secured by Jesus. The believer's position in Jesus is secure because it was secured by Jesus. Our salvation was secured by Jesus, it is maintained by Jesus, and it will be fulfilled by Jesus. As we say a lot around here, I love to say this, if you could lose your salvation, you would. You would. I would. There's no question about it. It's Jesus at the beginning, Jesus holding us all the way through, and Jesus finishing the work at the end. Just a quick theological side note here. When Paul says that they are in, and then he says both God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, I just want you to pick up that he's putting God the Father and Jesus on equal footing. And he's also saying that believers are equally positioned in relationship with both. The reason, of course, being that both are God. We're equally in God the Father, and we're equally in Christ, and we would be equally in the Holy Spirit, actually, as well, because they are all God as one. In verse 2, he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't know this yet, this is Paul's classic greeting at the beginning and or end of almost every one of his letters. Grace and peace because it's understanding the grace of God that gives you peace. That's the secret. He goes on in verse 3, we are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting. Because your faith, underlying faith, grows exceedingly. And the love, underlined love, of every one of you all abounds toward each other. I like this because Paul compliments them on their growing faith and their abounding love, but he does it by directing attention back to God. He says that he thanks God for them, which is a subtle way of giving God the credit for the good things that he sees in them. And I really like that. That's a great way to compliment somebody is I thank God for you or I thank God for the way you do this. It's a wonderful way to not let anybody's ego get out of control, but also let them know you appreciate what they are allowing the Lord to do through them. Now think with me for a minute here. What are the three things that Paul commended the Thessalonians for displaying in his first letter to them. What are the three things he said were the evidence that their faith was genuine? He mentioned faith, hope, and love. And if you were with us for those studies, you'll recall that faith looks back to what Jesus did for us on the cross in securing our salvation. Love for Jesus motivates us to live for him in the present, and we find hope by looking ahead to the future when we're going to be with the Lord. Here in verse three, Paul commends them for continuing to display faith and love, but, but what's missing? Hope, hope. You see, they had lost their hope. In the confusion that was being caused by these false teachers, false prophets, and this false letter, they were no longer sure that Jesus was coming for them. They thought they might have missed the rapture. They thought they might have been temporarily abandoned by God. They had lost their hope. Would you write this down? Their confusion over God's future plans for the church had caused the Thessalonians to lose their hope. It had caused them to lose their hope. What do we mean when we talk about hope? We're talking about the expectation of coming good. That certainty that something good is coming. That's what gives us hope. The blessed hope that the Bible talks about is the hope of the rapture, that coming future moment when all believers will be united with Jesus and transformed, resurrected into new eternal physical bodies. Titus 2.13, it's on your outline, says that we should live our lives looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Thessalonians had faith. They were sure of what Jesus had done for them on the cross. They had love. They were growing in their love for one another and serving each other 
day by day, but they had lost their hope, their expectation that they would be with Jesus. They now had no idea what what was going on. They were no longer living their lives looking for the coming of Jesus. They were confused. They had lost their hope. Faith takes care of my past. Hope takes care of my future. And those two things, when they're taken care of, free me to love in the present. If I haven't wrapped my head around the fact that Jesus has taken care of my past, if I haven't wrapped my head around the fact that he's made me new and taken care of all my mistakes, I'll be so preoccupied with my mistakes, so consumed and weighed down by my past failures, I'm going to be too focused on myself to love people well in the present. If I don't have the hope of the future coming of Jesus, if I don't know how the story ends, if I don't know where the world is going, I'm going to be freaked out when I think about the future. I'm going to be obsessed with trying to secure my future, plan for my future, avoid danger in the future. I'll be too busy with that to love well in the present. Faith and hope free me to love God and love people in the present. you got to have hope. Like the single lady who signed up for a Mediterranean cruise on her own. She got on the boat with her nicest clothes packed. She had her best dress on. Had her hair done up. Her makeup on point. And the first night as everyone is out and about in the lounge, she's walking around checking things out. She spots an attractive man having dinner alone. She watches him for a while. And it becomes evident he's on this cruise alone. He's got no ring on his finger. So she makes his way toward him, sits down at his table and says, you look exactly like my third husband. And he's, he's taken aback by her boldness and the man says, well, well, how many times have you been married? And she says, twice. Take a minute. That's what hope will do. That's what hope will do. It's the expectation that something good is coming. Hope changes the decisions you make and the way you live your life in the present. And the Thessalonians had apparently lost their hope. They had started thinking that they were living in the great tribulation and that they had missed the rapture. They lost their hope. Verse 4, Paul goes on, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. We're proud of you guys. We're able to boast about you and tell the other churches about how you're standing strong in the faith, even in the face of intense persecution. They were going through tribulations, through troubles and trials, but they weren't going through the great tribulation of the day of the Lord. They were experiencing the wrath of Satan who was stirring up the wrath of man against them, but they were not experiencing the wrath of the Lord. And Paul speaks of this season of tribulation in verse 5 as manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. Here's what he's saying. He's saying the fact that you are experiencing these difficulties, these persecutions, simply for following Jesus is evidence that you belong to him. It's evidence that you are in Christ. If you weren't, Satan wouldn't be trying to take you out. If you weren't, you wouldn't be able to stand strong in the face of this, but you are. So rejoice that you belong to God. You've been counted worthy of his kingdom. Peter the apostle would later write, it's on your outlines, he would write, Beloved, do not think it strange. Underline, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing has happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And later on in his life and ministry, Paul would write two letters to Timothy. And in his second letter, he'll tell Timothy, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. 
All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Another verse that's not showing up on a coffee mug anytime soon. And this is just one more reason, again, why I love that we work through the books of the Bible verse by verse, because the alternative is picking a topic and just talking about it. And if you, if you teach that way, you're probably not going to be drawn towards teaching verses like, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. I mean, you might, but I wouldn't if I got to choose. I'd rather teach stuff like God's got a great plan for your life. It's awesome and happy and wonderful and really, really great. Because you know what's nice? It's nice teaching stuff and having people go, that message made me feel really good. I like your church. Oh, I like that you like my church. That's great. That's awesome as well. But this is so important because as I mentioned again, this is the truth. This is the word. This is Jesus telling us the truth about how it is, about the way it is. And and when we don't teach this stuff, believers get freaked out when they experience trials tribulations or or difficulty because they love Jesus, because they weren't prepared for it, because they thought that serving and loving Jesus meant everything in your life became easier. And it's not the truth. And if we're not taught that, then like the Thessalonians, we become confused and we lose our hope because we don't know that this is coming. We don't have the hope of realizing, man, this is evidence that I belong to God and the fact that I'm able to stand and keep the faith through this is evidence that I belong to God and that fills my heart with joy. That's how Paul encouraged the Thessalonians. Would you write this down? Experiencing and persevering through persecution and trials is an evidence of salvation. It's an evidence of salvation. It doesn't earn you salvation, it's an evidence of salvation. It's not that if you can endure, then you've earned salvation. It's that if you belong to Jesus, you will endure. It's an evidence of your salvation. You might recall that when Jesus taught the parable of the sower, he described the message of the gospel as being like seed that is cast out by a farmer, and he described four different responses from people as being like the seed landing on four different types of soil. Here's what Jesus said about one of the types of soil, one of the responses to the gospel. It's on your outlines as well. He says, but he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Jesus is describing the person who hears the gospel, is excited about it, welcomes it, is on fire for God seemingly at first, but as soon as trouble hits their life, or as soon as following Jesus results in being persecuted, they bail on their faith. Well, what's the point of following Jesus if I still go through hard times? What's the point in following Jesus if it makes my life more difficult? The idea being that they were never saved. That's what Jesus taught. That's why Paul tells the Thessalonians they should be encouraged. He says their perseverance proves that their faith is real. They really are in Christ. They're truly saved. Another thing we talk about a lot around here is the reality that while we all wish that we grew and developed in times of ease and comfort. While we all wish that we became more like Jesus and took steps forward during the easier seasons of life, we all know that's really not the case. All of us grow almost exclusively when we are placed under pressure, when we are stretched and pulled and pushed in life. Those are the times when we grow. Growth doesn't always happen in times of pressure, but it almost never happens outside of times of pressure. We can choose not to grow in times of pressure, but it's almost impossible to choose to grow in times of ease. And I experience this all all the time with working out. I can sit down, I can read article after article about getting my mind right, you know, about stealing my resolve, about continuing to keep going under pressure, getting comfortable being in the pain cave, as they call it. But guess what? I don't actually get any better at anything while I'm reading all those articles. It's not like, wow, I, I read an article, I'm suddenly in better shape. It's when I'm in the middle of the workout wanting to quit that I either start 
applying what I've learned and grow or, or I quit. You can take in Bible studies on faith. You can talk about it. You can memorize scripture. You can pray for more faith. And all those things are good, but they're not when the growth happens. The growth happens the next time you're under pressure and you have to make a choice. You have to make the choice to stand strong in faith, hold on to all that scripture you've been taking in, all that truth that you've been reading, or to quit. That's when the growth happens. Make a note of this. Growth happens when we're under pressure. Growth happens when we're under pressure. And if you're like me, you naturally want to escape situations where you're under pressure. You naturally find yourself praying, God, just get me out of this. Just like end this season. Just get me out of this. But the problem is that as you read through the Bible, you find a very, very different sort of message about how we're to handle those times of trial and tribulation. You find stuff over and over again like James 1 where it says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. The message of the Bible is don't pray for an escape from pressure and from trials. Be glad when you're in them because it's in your trials that God does his greatest works in your life. And so I want to encourage you, if you're not already doing this, to change the way you pray in your trials. Change your mindset when you're in your trials. Several years ago, I changed the way I pray from God, get me out of this trial to God, help me graduate from this trial. Because the Bible tells me that God uses trials in my life to do his work in my life. So, so really get this with me. So if I'm following Jesus, if it's my goal to become more like him, and if he accomplishes that work in my life through trials, then I don't want to just escape my trials. I want God to do his work in me through my trials. I want to come out of each and every trial more like Jesus. That's the goal, not escaping them. So now my prayer is, is Lord, do your work in me. I would love this trial to be over, but more than that, I want your work and your will accomplished in my life. So God, help me to embrace your work in my life. Help me not to fight it. Help me to receive it. Help me to learn what it is you want to teach me. Do your work in my life, God. I'm not looking to escape my trials. I'm looking to graduate from my trials. And I want to encourage you to do the same thing. I want to come out of them on a different level to where I was at when I went into it. I want to graduate from every trial. If you're in a trial, there's something good that God wants to do in your life. There's change, there's growth, there's graduation to a deeper level of spiritual maturity that God wants to work in your life. So embrace it. Rejoice. Thank God that he's working in you. Write this down. If the goal is becoming more like Jesus, we won't seek to escape our trials. We'll seek to graduate from them. We'll seek to graduate from them. And that can look different depending on what the trial is. If you're overwhelmed by anxiety and fear, your graduation might be that the circumstance doesn't change, but your faith grows. And suddenly the things that made you anxious no longer make you anxious because your faith has grown and you've graduated from that trial. Now Paul moves on to a subject that is often a bit awkward for us. So let's, let's read it together. We'll read a whole chunk all the way through to verse 10 and then we'll talk about it. He says... Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. 
So again, there's a lot here, but we'll unpack it together. I'll just explain a couple of terms, and then we'll dig into it. First off, the day that's mentioned in verse 10 is the day of the Lord. That's why your Bible probably has it spelled with an uppercase D. It's not a single day. It's the future time period when God will judge the earth by pouring out his wrath upon it. It refers to that, that whole time period that begins shortly after the rapture of the church, and concludes with the destruction of our universe. It's all the moments in there when God is judging evil on the earth. So if you're lost right now, just go back and listen to the rest of our series. I wish we had time to recap all this, but we, we don't, unfortunately. This event where Jesus comes to the earth with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's the event known as the second coming. It takes place at the end of the seven years, referred to in Scripture as the 70th week of Daniel. It also takes place at the end of the Great Tribulation, which is the back half of those seven years. Again, if you're lost, go back, listen to the rest of the series, watch it online. And if you look at the details, the second coming described here is so clearly a different event to the rapture of the church that we read about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. You really can't read that chapter and this chapter and conclude that they're talking about the same event. You really can't do that because they're not. They're so different. Now that we've hopefully bought just a little bit of clarity there, let's take a look at the first chunk of what Paul says here. What Paul is saying is he's saying, guys, God is righteous. And part of his righteousness includes his plan to pay back with troubles those who trouble you. He has plans to deal with those who have rejected him and his offer of forgiveness. He has plans to execute justice against those who have chosen evil. He's going to deal with them one way or another in the day of the Lord. We're comfortable with peace and love, Jesus. But most of the time we're a little uncomfortable with vengeance and wrath, Jesus. So what do we do with that? Let me share a few observations and thoughts. Firstly, make a note of this. Real love must demonstrate itself in many ways. And one of those ways is justice. Real love must demonstrate itself in many ways. And one of those ways is justice. Imagine that I was made the sole judge over our city and I claim to love each and every citizen of our city. Now imagine... A man is brought to me who has murdered a child in our city. And imagine that in the courtroom where his trial is taking place and I am the judge, I just stand at the, the very beginning of the trial and I say, you know what? Because I'm a loving judge, I love even this murderer. So I'm going to let him go with no punishment. Love wins. Love wins, guys. Would any of us hold the opinion that I had acted in genuine love? Probably none of us, because we would all point out that my actions weren't at all loving to the family of the victim because they were denied justice. You see, whether we understand it or not, we all intrinsically know that real love includes justice. We all get it. One of the classic objections to God is, well, why doesn't God do something about all the evil in the world? And yet people are equally disturbed by the idea that God is going to do something about all the evil in the world. And it would seem to me that you can't have it both ways. You can't indict God for not dealing with evil. And then on the other hand, want to indict him again when you find out he has a plan to deal very decisively with evil. Of course, what people really mean is, I want God to deal with all the things in the world that I think are evil. That's what we really mean. To speak to that, I want to read you a quote from a phenomenal book. If you read one book this year, other than the Bible, I would highly recommend that you read this one, The Story of Reality by Greg Kokel. Um, I think it's destined to become a future classic if the Lord tarries. Here's something he says in the book about the issue of God's righteous wrath. I'll read it to you. He says, God's wrath is unsettling when we are the ones standing in the dock. It is fine when the other guy gets justice, but it's a very different matter when we get ours. Law-abiding citizens do not object when criminals pay their due. Only the felon finds fault. 
Second, we are so well acquainted with our own failures that familiarity has largely removed any deep sense of their gravity. We are inclined to consider ourselves as, generally speaking, basically good folk. What would happen, though, if we were brought before a judge who had complete knowledge of something as minor as our driving habits? Would we be a bit uneasy? Yet someone far greater watches, one with perfect knowledge, who executes perfect justice, weighing every person against a perfect law. Who will be able to say, I am in the clear. God will find nothing against me. No, instead he will find mountains, immorality, egotism, rebellion, self-will, deceit, disobedience, amassed from a lifetime of sin. Now Jesus died to take the punishment and to receive justice for all of our sins. But we have to agree to have him punished in our place. And that agreement can only take place when we give our lives over to him in exchange. If you're a believer, that's what you've done. Every single one of your sins has been paid for. There has been punishment. Justice has been done. It's just been done to Jesus instead of you. If God truly is love, every sin must be punished. There must be justice. And those who reject Jesus choose to receive their own punishment, their own justice. I'd also point out that that we're made in the image of God. Imago Dei is the Latin term. And because of that, there are things in us that can teach us about God. God created marriage. He created children. He created family. And all of those relationships, because they all teach us about him and about our relationship to him. Now, you might still be disturbed by the idea of a vengeful God, but if you're a parent, then you already understand it. Again, whether you realize it or not, you understand the concept of vengeance. Because if anyone were to violate one of your children and you learned who they were and where they lived, I don't know about you, maybe I'm going to indict myself here, but the reality of this situation would very quickly become it would be good for them to be in prison where they're safe from me. That's how it would be for me. I'm sure you're all looking at me like, that's really intense, Jeff. You need the Lord to work on you. I'm just telling you, that's just the way it is. You mess with my kids, it's on. It's on. Do you know where we get that from, where we get that mentality from? Unbelievably, we get that from our Heavenly Father. And for thousands of years, he has watched his children be abused and even murdered for loving him. And he hasn't been turning a blind eye to all that. He's simply been waiting to a future time to deal with it and give justice to his children. And that future time is the day of the Lord. That's what Paul is telling the Thessalonians here. He's telling them, guys, there's going to be justice. There's going to be justice, believe me. And we also see here the idea of sowing and reaping. We might say what goes around comes around. And this concept shows up in the Old Testament all the time. When the Israelites were in slavery in Egypt and and Pharaoh got nervous about how many of them there were, he commanded that all the Jewish babies who were born male be immediately killed. And if you remember the story, you'll know that not only did the plan fail, but who ends up dying in the final plague sent upon Egypt by the Lord? The firstborn son in every Egyptian household. In the story of Esther, what happens to Haman after he builds massive gallows to hang Mordecai from? Haman ends up being hung from those very gallows. What happened to the advisors who conspired to have King Darius throw Daniel to the lions? Darius ends up throwing them to the lions. And Paul tells the Thessalonians, it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. It's a scary thing that the Lord says, those who trouble my children will be troubled by me. And if we have any type of understanding, our response will be to pity those who do evil and are enemies of God because they're in a terrible position. 
even if they don't know it yet. They're in a terrible position. And we should pity them because they're in a position that we've all been in. Each of us having once at one time or another been enemies of God ourselves. Jesus said that we're to love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Why? Because when we were enemies of God. Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We're to become like Jesus. That's the goal. So we pray for, we bless, and we do good to those who persecute us because that's what Jesus did for us in the most extreme way possible, laying down his life for us. Make no mistake about it. The judge of all the earth is coming and he will judge rightly. He will judge rightly. The current situation on the earth is a lot like the old lady who was driving her Bentley in the mall parking lot. She's looking for a parking spot, very slowly driving round and round and round in her giant car. And she finally finds one and she's slowly pulling in in her Bentley when suddenly this guy in a loud, bright yellow Mustang just flies into the spot, cuts her off, takes it. She's just watching with her mouth open as this young guy hops out the car, sunglasses on, spinning keys on his finger, looks at her, dabs at her, keeps walking. She rolls down the window and she says, young man, what do you think you're doing? He just scoffs at her. As he looks back, he says, that's what happens when you're young and fast. The guy keeps walking. He barely makes it to the entrance of the mall when suddenly he hears bam, 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 over and over and over again. As he starts walking towards the noise, he cannot believe what he sees. This old lady is ramming his car with her Bentley over and over and over again. And he yells at her, he says, are you crazy? What do you think you're doing? And she says, that's what happens when you're old and rich. <laughs> right now, right now the world is being ruled by the fastest, the strongest, the quickest, the most manipulative, those willing to exploit others, those willing to cheat, lie, and steal. But, but make no mistake, the Bentley's coming. The Bentley's coming. Jesus is coming and justice is coming along with him. So stop being mad or frustrated that the world is not a just place right now. The Bible is clear that Satan is the God of this age, this world right now. So we shouldn't be surprised that the world does not reflect the values of Jesus, but more of the values of Satan. But it's not always going to be that way. Jesus is coming to fix all that. And every injustice, every wrong will be made right. It will. And it's a heavy point, but I want to make you aware of something in verse 9. Where Paul writes, These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. And from the glory of his power. I want you to notice that the destruction of those who reject Jesus is everlasting. It's described as everlasting, without end. Some religions and even some uninformed Christians will throw around the doctrine of what's called annihilation, that those who reject Jesus will simply cease to exist upon death. And again, to, to be honest, I wish that were true. I wish that were true. But it's not. The Bible teaches that Every human being is made with a spirit that will live for eternity. It won't die. It's made to last. And the Bible teaches that those who reject Jesus face eternal separation from God, which means they face eternal separation from the only source of love, the only source of joy, the only source of peace, happiness, rest, and everything good in existence. They don't need to be tormented actively. The torment is the complete absence of anything good. Anything good. 
They face eternal separation from all those things. Then look again now at verse 10. It says, when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. When Jesus comes for his church at the rapture and we receive our new resurrected eternal bodies, when we've gone through that transformation, the Greek word is literally the same word from which we get the word metamorphosis. Jesus will be glorified in us, in his saints. When that change happens, we're each going to be transformed into who we were truly created to be. We're all going to attain our our full potential. We will be who we are right now underneath all of our brokenness. Just think of what you'll be like when you're freed from all of your sin, all of your sinful desires, all of your wrong thoughts, all your past mistakes and how they've affected you. When you're freed from everything that's broken in your physical body, everything that's broken in your mind and in your thinking and the way you perceive others and perceive the world, everything that's broken in your soul, think about who you're going to be. Let me tell you what's going to happen. People are going to look at you and they're going to say, is is that you? Is that you? I can't believe what the Lord has done in you. And Jesus will be glorified in your transformation because people will know only Jesus could do that. Seriously, we'll look at people and we'll say, wow, I always thought you were kind of a loser, but but look at you now. Look what the Lord has done. Praise Jesus. We'll say of others and and they'll also say of us. They'll say, man, I, I always thought you were shallow. I always thought you were kind of conceited or arrogant I always thought you were kind of a jerk but but look at look at you now he's he's truly a God of miracles God is is so good and here's what's good to remember we have no idea how amazing every single one of our brothers and sisters in Christ truly is we have no idea and right now their greatness their beauty and their glory is, is, is concealed in a broken vessel, a broken body, a broken soul. But one day we're going to see them as they truly are. And so I believe the Lord would say to you and I, treat each other accordingly. Treat each other in light of who we are all destined to become. And we're all destined to become like Jesus. He tells us that. Verse 11, therefore we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what Paul is saying. He's not saying, guys, I hope you make it through this so that you know you're worthy to be saved because if you don't, then you're not worthy and and you're not going to earn your salvation. That's not what he's saying. Paul's saying, we're not praying for you to escape these trials. We're praying for you to graduate from these trials, whether that graduation is on earth or it ends in you going to heaven. He's saying, we're praying that God's work would be done in you and produce in you powerful faith, the kind of faith that brings glory to Jesus and enables you to live in a manner worthy of your calling in Christ Jesus. That's the idea. He's saying, I'm praying for you that you'd be filled with faith and with the power of God so that you can live in a way worthy of what God has called you to. Paul, Silas, and Timothy were absolutely convinced that in the middle of brutal trials, God was doing something good in the Thessalonian believers. And their desire for the Thessalonians was that they would welcome God's work in their lives, grow even deeper in their faith, and bring even more glory to Jesus. That's my prayer for my life. That's my prayer for your life in every trial that we face. If you're in a trial, if you're in tribulation today, I want to encourage you to thank God in faith for the good that he's working in you. And as scary as it might be, when we have this coming time of prayer and worship, 
I want to challenge you to pray, Lord, do your work in me. I don't want to escape this trial. I want to graduate from this trial. I want to come out of this more like you, so let your work be done in my life. However long I need to stay in this for your work to be done, I'm up for it, Lord. And then thank him in faith that he's made available to you everything that you need to graduate from this trial. He's made available to you through his spirit the strength you need to endure, the peace you need to rest even in the trial, his joy, yes, yes, really, his actual joy that you might have the joy of the Lord in your trial. He's made available his wisdom to you, his love and his power, his power. And I didn't put this in my notes, but just as I was thinking and praying about this message, um, I just wanted to share something. And this is, for, this is for more than one person. And I don't say that like prophetically. I, I say that in that I just know people. And so I know for a fact that this is, whoever listens to this message, this is always going to be for someone out there. Every room, every small group that listens to this, there's going to be someone in there that needs to hear this. This idea of graduating rather than escaping trials. It's not just about not asking God to help you escape. But, but I see mature believers, even all the time, get discouraged like these Thessalonians. Lose their hope because they're in a trial and they're thinking it wasn't supposed to be like this. And you read 2 Thessalonians and as we read through the other chapters in the coming weeks, you, you can sense they're just, they're not mad at God. They're not angry. They're, they're just deflated. Because they're going through something. And from what they knew about God, it, this wasn't supposed to happen. It wasn't supposed to be like this. And they, they lost their hope. And that happens to mature believers all, all the time. And it's not just that we sometimes pray, Lord, help me to escape from this. But, but we actually begin to think how we, how we can escape from it. And we think, maybe if I move to another place... Another country, another city, another suburb. Maybe, maybe then I can escape this trial. I'll relocate. You can ask Jonah how that works out. Not, not well. Or we think, you know, may, maybe if I just get a new wife or a new husband, new boyfriend, new girlfriend, then I'll, I'll just escape this trial and, and, and everything will be better. Or I'll just quit this job and look for something easier. And we try and, and engineer our own escape from these situations. And though this is hard, th this is truth. I believe what the word of God would say to us is stop looking for the way out. And start looking to Jesus and finding your hope in him. And you know you have hope when you're in that place where you say, listen Lord, if you deliver me from this trial or it just stays like this the rest of my life, Either way, I have hope because I know how this story ends. I have hope. I have faith because I look back to what you did on the cross for me. And I have love for you in the present. And so I just want to ask you to evaluate yourself, evaluate yourself, especially today if you're going through a trial or a tribulation, to just ask yourself the question, what's the prayer that you're praying? Is it just God get me out of this? Or is it, God, what do you want to do in me in this? What do you want to do? How do you want me to serve? What are you doing here? And evaluate whether you're resting in the Lord or trying to engineer some machinations behind the scenes to escape the trial. When God wants to do something profound through it and he wants to bless you through it. And if you're doing that, just give it up. Just stop and rest in the Lord. Rest in the Lord. Find your hope again. Thank him in faith that he's made available everything you need. Everything you need right now. With that, let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you that it tells us the truth about life. What we can expect and, and, and how we can handle it. And Father, I, I know that every single one of us According to your word, we're going to go through trials. We're going to go through tribulation. We're even 
going to go through persecution. But Lord, I also know that it's not intended to break us. It's intended to make us more like you. You don't take us through a trial so that we can be defeated, but so that we can experience victory in you. Real victory. Not the kind that only sticks around when things are good, but the victory that sustains us through the trial, through difficulty. Lord, we're not fighting for victory, we're fighting from victory. Because in you, we have victory. No weapon formed against us will prosper. There's nothing in all creation that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Through Jesus, we're more than conquerors. Through him who loved us. And so, Father, right now, we just repent of any engineering that we have done to escape from our trials. We let it go right now in the name of Jesus. And we instead ask humbly, what do you want to do, Lord? What do you want to do? Father, by faith, we stop asking to escape a trial. And we rejoice that we stand firm with you in it. And we welcome your work in our lives. Make us more like you, Jesus. We don't want to escape. We want to graduate from every trial. Come out the other end more like you. More surrender to your work in our lives, Jesus. So just work in us. Speak to us. Encourage those who need to be encouraged, Lord. Faith for those who need faith this evening, Lord. Joy for those who need joy. Peace for those who need peace. Father, we ask and thank you in faith for supplying every need represented in this room, even now, by the power of your Spirit, Jesus. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says the gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.